Good morning again. So we are in Nehemiah chapter 12. This leaves us with one more chapter in Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah chapter 12 is um, a celebration. It's a consecration, a dedication to everything that Nehemiah, I should say God, has accomplished through Nehemiah up to this point. And we saw this incrementally growing, this accomplishment with the Word of God getting back into place after the temple and the walls were built. Um, the law of God being read, confession, covenant treaties being made. And now that it's all done, they moved back into the city in chapter 11. They drew near to the temple. 5% of the people came in. <clears throat> I'm sorry, a 1 out of 10, 10% of the people came in to live in the city. We talked about how that correlates to us drawing closer to God's presence. And today we see the celebration. And so I'm going to go through Nehemiah chapter 12, but we're going to shortcut through a first of the a few chunks here. First of all, Nehemiah chapter 12, again, lists these genealogies. And it's so important because the worship of God was meticulous. It had to be done through the right people, which were the Levites, the servants. And it also had to be make sure that they were, in fact, who they were claiming to be. And so that's why we see all these who the writer of this book is Ezra continually writing this, you know, the tracing back the genealogy to make this what's going on here authentic and biblical. And so in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, we see a list of the priests and Levites in the days of Zerubbabel, the high priest. And so Zerubbabel was about 100 years before this. And he first came when Cyrus made the decree that they could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel went, and we have Haggai and Zechariah preaching to him and encouraging him. And so they list all the priests and Levites from that period of time. And then right after that, from uh, Nehemiah 12, 12 to 21, we see the priests in the days of Joachim. And then from verses 22 to 26, we see the Levites during the reign of Darius the Persian. And so basically Cyrus issued the decree in 538 to return to Jerusalem and the foundation of the temple was laid by Zerubbabel. But then they had some opposition and so they stopped the work for 23 years until Darius came back in and reinstituted the building of the temple. So we have all the Levites during his reign, which brings us all the way up to where we are today which are today in the text, I should say, which is Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 to 47. So we'll start there. And this is about the dedication. So now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment um, the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 28. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the village of the Nedophathites. Verse 29. From Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. So basically what they're, they're, they're listing these names are all the little tiny villages outside Jerusalem where some of the singers were camped out and they were living. They weren't living inside the walls. 
<clears throat> and then we have verse 30. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people. They also purified the gates and the walls. Then I had, this is Nehemiah talking in the first person, then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. The first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Now when I say Nehemiah was talking in the first person, and then I said before that Ezra was writing this, Basically, Ezra was the writer, but he was taking pieces of Nehemiah's journal and piecing it together. And so that's why you see the two different things there. And so from verse 32 to 42, we see the procession of choirs and Levites worshiping around the wall. So if you could picture this, we have the wall of Jerusalem all the way around the temple, all the way around the city of David. And they start down at the bottom and they just go all the way around. The temple's up at the top. And they're just worshiping and praising and singing uh, hymns. And it's all being led by the Levites, as you can see in, uh, in there as well. And Ezra was in there leading them. And then in verse 43, it says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into uh, from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. So they were just cheering these guys on as they were getting everything in place for the regular worship, the continual worship of God in the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. For they perform the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So they're emulating the ancient times. They're emulating the word of God from David and Solomon. So verse 47, so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, which was the first people that came from the, um, from the exile, and Nehemiah, which is where we are now, gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron, the priests and the high priest. So this was very important, sort of like equivalent to saying, hey, we're going to call a pastor to come lead us. Are we going to be able to support him? Are, is he going to be able to really give, do the service of the Lord? And that's what these people wanted. They wanted to, to and this was much more, these were hundreds of people that had to be provided for. And so now it was all in place and they were dedicating the wall and they were celebrating for all the things that the Lord had done. So... <clears throat> This is something that required a full heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I, did you ever see those robots in the stores? Like, we were in Walmart the other day, I think. Uh, with, or I was ShopRite with my son Ezra, and he says, Dad, look, look at that. Look, it's a robot. And this thing was just moving all around, doing its thing. I'm thinking to myself, what is it doing? It was actually cleaning up a spill that somebody had dropped something. The robot came, and he cleaned it all up. And just went and did it perfectly. Knew exactly how many times to go up and down, side to side. Released whatever fluids it had to release. Mopped it all up. 
It was really cool. And the robot had a little panel, which you could program it to do other things, to go to other aisles. Uh, I'm assuming somebody was operating it or programming it or whatever it was doing, but it was really doing a great job. Very, very reliable. And so even though this robot was doing everything perfect, it was still simply going through the motions. The robot was lifeless. It had no life in it. It was programmed. And you could also see this with people in their jobs, right? Some of the most menial jobs, people do it for a while and then they just become programmed robots. And you just say, how could they do this all day just for the money? I don't understand it. They do something that they really, you could tell they don't like to do, but they're going through the motions because of whatever benefit they feel they are getting. And I believe this is the same sort of syndrome that we can get when we come together to worship the God, worship God in, as a congregation. Because in this, in this passage, we are simply talking about congregational worship. This passage is about the people of God getting together and collectively singing, praising the Lord, preaching, reading the scriptures, sacrificing, doing all the things that they're supposed to do. And this completely translates to what we do here as a church, locally and as a church wholesale, when we come together corporately to worship the Lord. <clears throat> now you might think, why would God, who absolutely needs nothing, if you ever think about that, we, I know we allude to that here, but God doesn't need us. God didn't create us because he was lonely he didn't create us because he was playing some sort of game or some sort of challenge or whatever the case may be. God created us out of pure love because that's who God is. God is love. And he created us in his image even more so because he is love. He could have created us as animals or whatever else and he could have st still been just as lovely because he did create animals and things and insects and bugs and the trillions of different species that are here. But he made humans differently. And one of the things, but many things that sets us apart from the rest of God's creation is he does, he does not allow us necessarily to operate by instinct primarily. We do have instincts and they are given by God. But God has caused us to operate through worship. He has caused us to want to worship things. He has caused us ultimately to worship himself. But because of the curse that he has put down because of sin, that object of worship gets sidetracked. And so God created us. He didn't need us. But then on top of that, he created us to worship him. Why would he do that? Why would a God who needs absolutely nothing create us or create people with the primary purpose of their sole existence is to glorify and worship God? It can't be because of selfishness. It can't be because he wants us to kiss the ring. We see that in earthly kings. Come and kiss the ring. Bow down before me. I want to receive worship. I want to let make sure you know that I am the king. No, our God bowed down to us. 
He came down and laid down his life so that we could properly have a right relationship of worship towards him. It's that important to God. Worshiping makes people either inhuman or purely, truly human. Worshiping makes people either inhuman or purposely, or I'm sorry, or truly human, deliberately human. And how, what do I mean by that? When we worship anything else other than God, we lean more towards, we lean more towards becoming un- inhuman. We get less and less and less human because true humanity in its purest form that God intended in the beginning is a reflected mirror, an angled mirror to to worship God and to also reflect his glory in worship out into the world. And so when we worship other things, it actually takes away from our life. It pulls us away from God. And the ultimate result of that, the logical conclusion of that is hell is becoming completely separate from God. And that's where we're headed from the day we're born. We're headed down towards that. We're worshiping ourselves. We're feeding ourselves. We're, we're selfish, selfish people, beings. It's all about us. And then when God reverses the curse in us, he makes us a different person so much so that we're going against our ingrained sinful nature. We're now made fully who we were supposed to be. And now we want to worship God. We actually get pleasure and joy. And the more we worship God, the more joy we have. And we therefore become more human from faith to faith. And ultimately we're going to become so much human that we're going to be made in the, that we're going to be perfected in the image of Christ. And so worshiping is so, so important. What does it mean? It means to bow down the word. It means to kiss the hand, literally. And our purpose isn't to worship multiple things. It's not to worship God and other things. It's to worship God alone. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil in Matthew 4, the devil took him through all sorts of temptations, actually total of three, but really representing three major things. But the one thing that he did at the very end was his ultimate goal. Because he knew if he can get Jesus to jump down and listen to him and say, hey, just jump off, God is going to protect you, um, or make these stones bread, he knew he would have had him. But it ultimately came down to this, bow down and worship me. That's what Satan said to Jesus, and that's what he's saying to every single one of you and me. Bow down and worship me. And we have to be able to discern and determine who, when, what's taking us away from God's worship and what is really Satan moving us uh, in that direction. But what is God calling us to do? He said what Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So God created us for holy worship, holy corporate worship, and also holy individual worship. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the requirements are the same. And that's what I want to talk about with this text today. And so the first thing I want to make clear is that in their worship, the first point is that they celebrated in their worship. They celebrated. And we see this celebration as we spoke about in many different ways. But what were the core, what was the common denominator of this worship and celebration 
was in verse 30, we see that they were purified in their worship. You see, that's the, the, that's the rub. That's why no matter who you are or how well you know the Bible, unless you come to God on his terms, your worship is, is going to fall short of the ears of God and it's going to be categorized as selfish. We can only approach God with purity. And it says they purified themselves, and, 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 but it doesn't tell us how they did it. But if you go to the Old Testament, you can see King Hezekiah gives us an example here. Numbers 8 also gives us an example. King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, 20 to 24, it says that he rose early. This is when he was getting the temple back together. He was restoring temple worship, sort of what's going on here. He assembled the princes of the city. He went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood, and they sprinkled it on the altar. And so when they say purified, it's the last thing we're thinking about. <laughs> and that's blood being sprinkled all over the place. They also purified with the sprinkling of water, uh, which the tabernacle and the sacred utensils were purified with. And they did it with prayers and they did it with sacrifices and all this other stuff. But primarily, the people were baptized, sprinkled with blood. This is what purified them to be able to walk around and, pr and praise God and truly, truly set apart, set apart. That means holy means set apart the wall and the city unto God. And so how can we come to God with these holy hands and clean hands and a pure heart? It says that in the Psalms. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully? No one. But how can we come to him with a pure heart and clean hands? Well, in Leviticus 17, 4, it says, the life is in the blood. John, 1 John 5, 12, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. The life in blood of Christ, that life gives life to our worship. The only way we can truly come to Christ is not through the sacrifices that we make. The only way we can truly come to God purely is not how many times we line up for the procession at church or how many times we read our Bible. It comes solely and exclusively through the blood of Christ applied to your account because of your faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Purification of the heart and hands causes us to worship God through the blood of Christ, and that worship becomes joyful because it's centered on our Savior. You see, when we worship God, we are thinking about how glorious God is and how amazing God is, and how his incredible wisdom and his incredible love. But if you take Christ out of that, it's nothing. Nothing at all. He, it's, where did he express his love towards us? No Christ. Why are we praising him? No gospel, no Christ. No, but he did in fact send his son to die for us. He did in fact become a man, a human, fully God and fully man. He did in fact bear the law. He did, in fact, bear our burdens. He did, in fact, take our punishment that we deserved. 
But that's just the beginning. He rose from the dead and he's king over all. And now we are able to come in and out and worship God. And when we worship him, the joy comes from that belief of Jesus Christ. Joyful worship is when we connect with God. Do you connect with God in our corporate worship time? Are you connecting with him right now? Are you analyzing my sermon? Are you making sure I'm grammatically correct? Are you laughing about every little mistake I make? That's okay. However, God wants your pure worship. God wants you to focus and connect with his heart, not just through the preaching, but also through the song and through everything that we do. When we do that, we reflect that back out into the world. We leave here and we are now a, a light on fire that cannot be resisted. The light is shining out. You glow. Without Christ, we're fractured. Without Christ, we're unable to make that connection. It also says they worshiped with, they worshiped with joy, but they also worshiped with gladness. They worshiped with gladness. Now, verse 27 shows that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, not just sitting around going, we're so glad. This is so good. I'm glad that God is, uh, is here back at the temple. I'm glad the wall's built. No, they took action. They got up. They walked around. They sang hymns. They sang songs. They banged on cymbals and harps and lyres and truth tellers. I don't know what the liar is, but I know it's, it's, it's spelled L-Y-R-E-S. But it's, a, it's an instrument, right? They were making sounds to the Lord. They were taking action. Now, our action in, in worshiping God is coming together and worshiping as, as, a, as a church. That's the action step that we do. It's not just coming and sitting down. And just going, okay, I'm hearing the word, I'm worshiping, and then where am I going to go? And then we leave. Although we, that's okay to do that. I'm not saying that's wrong in and of itself, right? But we need to come here not because we're going to get something out of it. Our first and primary reason we should come to church is to worship God with his people. Because right now, if you and I were just two people in a room, the Holy Spirit is in you and is in me. But right now, those of us that believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in all of us, united in all of us. And just think about that. The power that's in this room right now, the holiness that's in this room right now, if you truly believe God is in you. And then we talked about in the prayer, we, we, worship, we, we thank God for the other churches, the other biblical churches that are around here. And we agreed that we're going to pray for each other from the pulpit each week. And you know, the churches that are meeting right now, they are also filled with the Holy Spirit. And the the churches that are down the street, across the world, across everywhere, we are doing this for a reason. It's not just to get together. It's to get together to symbolically show Christ's impact out throughout the whole world. That's why a man stands at a pulpit or stands up and, work and, and preaches the word. That's a representation of Christ going out. And that's why Timothy and Titus say that it's got to be a man who preaches the Bible from a pulpit in the church service. Because that man is representing Christ the man. 
the second Adam. It's not just that God is, uh, you know, uh, you know, a liberal and he's like, uh, or, or a conservative, I'm sorry. And he's like, you know, I don't want women up there. That's no good. No, it's just, this is a biblical pattern. And so he's, we're preaching out. But when that is representing, it's not just represented here. It's represented in every church on Sunday. And it doesn't have to be the exact times. It's happening everywhere throughout the world. And really it's happening constantly, just like it did here in, the, in chapter 12. They were setting up the worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the temple, sacrifices, offerings by the priests and the Levites. But here they come together, just like the local government. You know, you think about the local, we have local city, state, and federal government, right? It's, a, it's supposed to come out of the local government, and then, the, you know, the, it's supposed to be a support like, well, here's the local, and then the state supports them, and then the federal supports them. But regardless of how you see it, the local government is a reflection of that federal government. And so the local congregation is a reflection of the ultimate congregation, And so it's so important when we come together to worship God corporately, and it's so important that we all connect with God, not connect in our own way, connect through the word of God, which we're going to talk about that. And secondly, connect with God from a spiritual perspective, because our spirits are connected in one in Christ. That's why we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, not from genealogy necessarily. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, not from being Jewish or Israeli or anything like that, or any nationality. We're brothers and sisters because we share of the same spirit and we have the same father spiritually. And this is why Jesus said that when we read today, what Chris read on John chapter four, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So God is seeking out today. He sees you worshiping him in spirit. He sees you worshiping him in truth. What does it mean to worship him in truth? It means that From our innermost being, through the Holy Spirit, Christ, because he's our center, truly makes worship what it's supposed to be. We worship in the truth, Jesus Christ. We worship him in spirit and in truth. It's perfect. It's right. It's Christ. We're connected to God directly through the truth. No other way. And also what I love about this worship, and this is why we, we, we are here, we are Trinitarians. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. Distinct personalities, but the exact same in being and in essence, they're the same. And so when our wor- in our worship, like we see here, like Jesus is saying, the true worshipers will come to the Father in spirit and in truth. We see a picture of the Trinity there. Jesus, the saying he is the Messiah, saying that we're going to come the Father. God is seeking the true worshipers in spirit. And so when you worship God, even here, you should worship in spirit 
and in truth, but triunely. You got to, from a triune perspective, you can come to Christ. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. When I sit here, oftentimes I'm praying to the Holy Spirit for the ability to come up and preach the word because I know that He is the Spirit of truth and He is going to give me the words to make you and give you comfort because He is the comforter. And I also, I could pray to Jesus when I, when I, before I preach. I could pray to God the Father and thank Him for, 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 for being here, for giving me and drawing me to Christ. Whatever the case may be, you can pray directly to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can pray to God. You, they're all one, so you're not cheating on one by praying to the other. God isn't going, well, how come you're not praying? Jesus is going, why aren't you praying to me? You know, it's Jesus and, and, and the Holy Spirit and the Father are one. <clears throat> now, the other thing here in verse 43, it says, let, let me just go to that. It says, um, what does it say here? And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. God had given them great joy. See, that's one thing we have to understand. We can't think that this is something we have to conjure up when we get to church. And you've seen how that can go. You know, before you know it, we'll be having, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be drinking snake venom up here. We'll, we'll be doing, you know, uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, speaking in tongues, everyone at once and all these different things going on. We'll conjure up like this real emotional song that the girls will, that the, the worship team will sing and they'll, they'll start to, you know, sing something really, really emotional. And then I'll come up and start whispering to you and start really persuading you to, to, to get up here and to conjure up those feelings inside. That's not where the joy of the Lord comes from. God has to give it to us. Now, if God gives us to it, gives that joy to us and gives us that spirit of worship, and then we get emotional, that's different. Okay, but it's not something that we have to conjure up. It's God giving it to us. And there's nothing more joyful than having that happen. Here's why. Because again, remember what I said in the beginning? You become more human, more and more and more human when you worship Jesus. You change, you're sanctified. You're becoming more of who you were born to be. And, and it's like when you get the calling, you know where God's called you. You're like, I, I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I know we, we often don't think that because we're always thinking too far ahead instead of where we're at. Know that where you're at right now is where God has called you right now. Whether it's good or whether it's trying or whether it's difficult or whatever it is, you're, you're where God wants you right now. You're moving but this is where he wants you. But maybe you have a calling in life that you want to do something, that you want, you have a vision from God to go out and do something. Or maybe you have a, a calling to be a mother or a father or whatever the case is. You know, when I'm sitting there looking at my children with my wife, I'm saying, this is what, this is life right here. I'm so excited to see as, as crazy and as dysfunctional as my family is how it is that this is where God has called me, right? And it's just knowing I was called here to be that for them. Knowing that if I made stupid, if God didn't stop me from making stupid mistakes, 
I would be somewhere else in a bad situation. I look and say, wow, thank you, Lord. And that feeling of knowing that you are at where God wants you to be is absolutely amazing, isn't it? And so when you get the joy of the Lord, when he puts it in you to worship him, he gives you that great joy. At that very moment, regardless of what's going on, you're connected to God. You're connected to Christ. And I pray that that happens every time you come. Every time you come here. I don't care. I'm not saying again to conjure it up. But how do we get it? Well, one, there's a a lot of different ways we get it. But it says here that in in, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 27, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his presence. And like we talked about last week, coming into his presence closer and closer, it gives us that incredible joy. So we get this joy and strength, and it requires strength, people. This isn't just a, a, a whammy. This is a, this is, it requires you to flex your spiritual muscles. It requires strength. Be in his presence. If you're rushing here, waking up late, you know, you, you didn't even, you had no time to reflect at all and you just come into church, all right, fine, you're here. But I would suggest set your alarm a little earlier before you come into the presence of God. And I mean that not because the building is the presence of God, but because we're all here together, right? We're coming to corporately worship him. God is present. Take the time to spend with the Lord before you come in. Get into his presence, <clears throat> the next point is that they worship as per the word of God. And if you look here at verse 45, it says, according to David and Solomon, they did all of these things. Now we must worship according to the word. We can't go outside of the word. And in theology, there's two different theories. There's the normative and the regulatory principle of worship. The regulatory principle of worship means that God disapproves all modes of worship that are not expressively or expressed in the scripture. So anything that's not in scripture is prohibited, which would be like the church bulletin. Like I couldn't come up here and give you a church bulletin notice or make announcements as part of our worship service because that's not seen in the scripture. And some people think even singing songs, man-made songs are not, we have to sing psalms or specific scriptures. And then the, the normative is the normative principle of worship is God prohibit or God permits anything that's not prohibited. So pretty much everything's open as long as it says don't do this. Now, I believe that we should fall somewhere in between that. And what I mean is I'm not trying to be neutral. What I mean is the word of God has to be our guide. But as long as it's agreeable to the peace and the unity of the church, and it doesn't contradict the word of God or, contra- or cause for a contradiction in the word of God. Like you getting up and dancing around during the service. If you do that, you'll probably be able to do it once. And then we'll have a talk with you and say, look, if you want to dance around, like go downstairs, you know, or outside and dance around and, and, and then come back in. Because why? Because it, it distracts people from the word of God. So I think if anything distracts from the word of God, then that should be, that should put it, put a seatbelt on that. I think that lifting hands in service is great. 
I think that closing your eyes or doing whatever you want to do in your seat to praise the Lord, as long as you're not doing it for anything other than Him, and you feel not, you don't feel convicted by that in any way, then you should do that. I believe we should sing with our voice. I believe all these are in the Word. But anything that mimics or lessens the impact, especially of the preaching of the Word, has to go. All things have to be done decently and in order. Most important in our worship service has to be the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have to be able to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that starts here at the pulpit. You know, sometimes maybe God will pull me off of the, off of the, 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 the notes, you know. Sometimes we'll, we may want to, the worship team may say, you know, let's sing another different song or whatever the case may be. Sometimes you may say, hey, I'm going to sit up in the front today. I'm going to really take a step and get right up and, and feel the breath of the preacher up there. But we want to allow the Spirit to lead. And so the reading, the preaching, the teaching, the congregational singing, the tithing, the serving, the praying, this is all a form of worship that must be done properly and in order, but grounded on the Word of God. Charismatic, well, it may be okay, but not charismania. Okay, and we can figure that out as we go. But we, if we lead, if we let the Holy Spirit lead, and we let the Word of God guide, then we will be good. So, to summarize, and then I'll make one last point, which I think is, is, uh, is, is also here in the text, is purify yourself for worship. Be Christ-centered by worshiping in spirit and in truth. Come here with the right heart, already prepared, knowing you're stepping into the presence of God. Prioritize this. And everything we do here, see as worship. And also, as you leave here, remember, you are the church in the temple of God. And so this is the model, just like the family is the model for, that, for the children to go out into the world, right? The church is also the model for the church, the, fam- the church family to go out into the world. So take your worship in everything you do. If you find yourself doing something that's not worshiping God, but worshiping something else, the Holy Spirit will tell you. And you need to straighten that out. <clears throat> so the final thing I wanted to talk about was that this last is there's a couple words here. There's a couple phrases that really jumped out at me as it relates to the dedication and as it relates to the consecration of Jerusalem and the wall. And this is verse um, 43 in verse 44, where they use the phrase on that day. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. And on that day, men and women were appointed over the chambers and so forth to gather first fruits. On that day of dedication, on that day of consecration. And that phrase is only used in a few different places in Scripture exactly. And one of the places it's used is for the day of judgment. On that day. And I know when we hear the word judgment, we say, ooh, judgment, right? Well, judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. We like it. We've said this before. Judgment is when God makes things that were wrong right. He judges the world in righteousness, and he makes all things right. And when Christ returns, it says in 2 Timothy 1.8, the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
And again, in four, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved this appearing. On that day refers to the great consecration, the great dedication, when the whole entire creation will be completely made new when Christ returns. And the whole entire creation will be consecrated to him and dedicated to him. And then he will turn all things over to the Father and all things will be made one in God. But on that day also could be a very dangerous thing. It could be very difficult. It could be a great day of terror. It's also used that Jesus says on Matthew 7, 21, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And on that day, when they're expecting a welcome, they're going to receive judgment. It says that Jesus will be revealed on that day from heaven with his mighty angels. I I added it in there on that. Uh, But this is the same day in flaming fire, dealing out uh, retribution to those who don't know God. Retribution means punishment. It means vengeance. It means revenge for the things that were done wrong to him and his people. And so on that day could be a great dedication and a great consecration for those that believe in Christ. This is what Nehemiah is talking about. The completion of the city of Jerusalem, set apart and sanctified and committed to God, picturing and pointing forward to that ultimate day. And as it's a great day of celebration for the people of Israel, it will be a great day of celebration for those who live in Christ. But for those who don't, it will be a consecration, a setting apart, a pushing away from God. So this is the time where we must, we, we, the, the, the one place, I don't know about you, but when I was a backslidden Christian, if that's what you want to call it, and I used to read the word of God, I used to get convicted. But one of the things that used to really turn my stomach is going to church. It used to, I used to listen, but when I was in the corporate worship, I felt like I was standing out like a sore thumb. I was being loved. I was being fed. But I felt that conviction in the corporate assembly. And so I ask, I'm telling you right now, if you feel that conviction, that there's not something, that there's something missing between the worship that's going on, don't let that go. Come to Christ fully because you don't want to wait to that final time. You don't want to wait to that day. That day's too late. But God is calling us in now. He's calling us together now. For a great purpose, I believe, not just corporately as a whole, as a, as a church going forward towards the kingdom, but especially here at faith, I believe that God will do and is doing and will continue to do wonderful things. But I also believe that he stands back and sits down and allows things to work itself out until that purification happens. And that starts with me. That starts with uh, the leaders and the, and the elders and especially uh, uh, everyone else. But we have to make sure that we have our hearts right with God in worship. Let's pray. Examine our hearts, Father. Please take away anything that clouds our worship, Lord. Take away anything that's dirtying our hands. Take away anything, Lord, that is uh, coming between the Holy Spirit working through us and your son Christ 
The triune God, Lord, we we come to you as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we ask for your help. Make us, Lord, those true worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.